This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello and welcome to My Tale to Tell, bringing you life stories from the varied and diverse people who live in Canterbury, New Zealand. All of these stories are read by those who wrote them as part of a Writing Your Memoir workshop and they have kindly agreed to share them with you. For privacy reasons, some of the names have been changed. Some language may offend and some content may shock you. But no life is ordinary. We all have a tale to tell. My name is Julie and this is my tale to tell. Our pet rabbit, Buttons. We got ourselves a pet rabbit and called her Buttons. It wasn't really part of our plan. It was a chance encounter at Kashmir Primary School after the earthquakes. Rebecca, another parent, told us, we have some really cute baby rabbits available. We agreed, it sounded like a great plan. It would be good for Amelia to care for a pet, we were thinking. We were in a rental house and our neighbours had gifted us the old guinea pig hutch. The property was fenced and provided a natural free-range enclosure. She was indeed a cute rabbit. When she got bigger, we would have her hop around the garden. There's something very soothing for the soul when you see a rabbit jumping around the garden. At night, we would catch buttons to put her into the hutch to be safe. I say she was an intelligent rabbit. I would call out buttons, buttons, and she'd come running. Picking her up, stroking her, and tickling her behind the ears was welcomed by her. Nothing like stroking a rabbit to slow down your heart rate and make it sing. If she was hungry, she'd run to the cereal bowl, pick it up in her mouth, and throw it, indicating it was empty. Buttons, of course, loved the opportunity to dig in the garden. We did find her on the wrong side of our fence at one stage, and it was all hands on deck to locate her. She was happy, two houses down, hopping around their front garden. Getting her back was not as easy as we thought, but patience was the answer. And a few bricks solved the problem of any future escape. So it was that Buttons found her home with us at our new rebuilt home back in Walker Terrace. Buttons didn't want our nice hutch. She'd rather dig in the retaining wall to create her burrow. She was funny to watch. She'd dig, then stop, look around to see if we were watching. If she thought she was unobserved, she'd flick the clay out behind her. You would see her spreading it out. And it reminded me of the movies when they were building the tunnels and spread the dugout soil across the compound trying to hide it. This went on and on, and we estimate a few cubic metres of clay have been removed. We filled up bags after bags after bags. Again, the great escape happened. Buttons dug her way into the orchard, and finding she was free, she took off. Out along the road around the empty section, working her way up to the neighbour's property. She came home at night, 
and she was back ready for her evening cereal treat and a few branches of tree lucerne or freshly picked milk thistle or dandelion leaves and flowers. I was happy she'd head out in the morning and find her way home. She was happy. She was free. It was her lifestyle. And she came and went as she pleased. This went on for a week, and I thought, how lucky were we to have such an intelligent rabbit? She always went out for her adventures and came home in time for dinner, much like teenagers who head out and come home in time for dinner. All was well until the neighbours up the hill sent us an email which said, there is a black and white rabbit that has been coming and eating our baby carrots, and they also liked their baby carrots. Okay, I thought, this has to stop, and I blocked the escape hole. I really did feel very mean, but for the sake of neighbourly relations, I really had no choice. Buttons had a wonderful life and died in February this year, 2019. Rest in peace, Buttons, you were a very special, intelligent rabbit. I'm Isabel, and this is my tale to tell. Why I love my job. Looking back on my earning days, there were several jobs that I loved. One that I didn't go looking for was for the Dominion newspaper in Wellington. I was to be responsible for selling advertising for the newspaper in Auckland. I'd had no experience at all in selling, but at 24... I was willing to try anything that took my interest. There is a skill and a technique to selling advertising over the phone. Fortunately, I had an excellent tutor, Diane, who taught me in two minutes flat how to succeed. She had plucked me from the receptionist position I had for three years working for an accountant next door. No interview, No confirmation from head office. I got it. Never looked back. Diane didn't hang around. As soon as I was ensconced in the job, she was off to Wellington head office. Diane was ambitious and in a hurry. I learnt later that she was having an affair with the MD and had got herself promotion. I lacked her ruthlessness, but I had the desire and energy to succeed and it was handed to me on a plate. Being a woman in sole charge position in the 1960s was not easy. It was common for people to be taken aback when greeted by a young female when they were expecting a middle-aged man. Some interesting people came into the office. It's funny how a newspaper can draw people like a magnet, a bit like a village pub. Sometimes they would discuss business, but often they'd stroll in, sit back in their chair and chat. I kept my mouth shut, probably partly because I wouldn't want to show my ignorance, but partly to curtail discussions. Of course, I heard a lot of nonsense. There was a freelance reporter who liked to name drop and bring me the latest gossip. 
One day, a man marched in and announced that he was the new Solicitor General, shortly to be announced. He gave me a photo of him to go with the announcement. And when he'd finished, both he and I were convinced he was the Solicitor General. So he walked out of the office and I shook myself, confined the photo to the rubbish, sparing a thought for the man who was happily delusional. Apparently, head office didn't think that a young woman could achieve much and didn't object to me being on a 25% commission-only package on the advertising that I sold. After three months, head office sent a kind elderly gentleman to talk to me about what I was earning. He said it was indecent for a young lady to be earning so much money. Patronising old man, I thought. They wanted to put me on a salary and a small commission. That suited me. It would give me more security. I wasn't in the job just to earn a quick buck. Since I was now on the payroll, proper, I began to use my initiative. A woman who lived in North Auckland offered to sell advertising in her area where she was working and had done for several years. She had lots of contacts. The arrangement worked well. I heard from my previous boss of a young builder who had broken his back when a beam fell on him. He was paralysed from the neck down. Insurance refused to pay out. I asked him if he would be interested in selling advertising over the phone. And that is what he did. Loved it and was tenacious and successful. He wore headphones and his wife acted as his secretary. I persuaded head office to distribute their newly introduced Sunday newspaper into Auckland. It needed to be sold through dairies as they were the only outlets open early on a Sunday. I contacted all the Auckland dairies to find out how many papers they wanted. I appointed a delivery manager who hired taxis to collect the papers from the airport very early on a Sunday morning and distribute dairies. I had the idea of running supplements. I sold advertising and wrote the body copy on whatever feature was being advertised. Again, I had no experience in any of this, but gave it a go. My newspaper days, or rather four years, came to an end when a friend pointed out an ad to me that she thought sounded like me. And so it proved. I applied and was successful. New Zealand manager for an international journal. That was another job I loved. Excellent training and lots of challenges. Very enjoyable. I learned years later that Diane, who gave me her job to take up her promotion in the Dominion Wellington, also applied... How ironic is that? (laughs) My name is Karen, and this is my tale to tell. In September 1989, just after my 21st birthday, I flew to London on my own to begin my big OE. One by one, my friends who had said they'd join me pulled out, and undeterred, I went anyway. 
I arrived at Gatwick Airport having not slept a wink on the 24-hour flight, tired but elated to be overseas for the first time. I caught a train to Victoria Station, a tube to Russell Square and checked in to the Royal National Hotel. I promptly burst into tears when there was nobody to carry my bag up to my room. I was just so exhausted and that felt like the last straw. I shared a room with two Aussie girls for two nights before joining a Kentucky tour of England, Scotland and Wales. The tour was fabulous, full of Kiwis and Aussies, also on their big OEs. I had complete freedom to be myself. I was on holiday, here to have fun, and I knew nobody. It was fantastic. I quickly made friends with an Australian girl called Sharon. She was a real hard case, and we never stopped laughing. After the tour, I found a live-in job at a pub in Thames Ditton, Surrey, where I worked through the English winter, saving money to travel around Europe when summer came. There was another girl from Christchurch working there. Annie and I shared a room and became friends, and one day yet another Kiwi girl arrived. It turned out that I'd flattered with her cousin in Christchurch, and I'd actually been to a toga party at Marawa's house a couple of years previously. What a small world. The freedom to expand my horizons was exhilarating, and I stayed away from home for 15 months altogether. I did another Kentucky tour, this time around Europe for a month in May 1990, and I still keep in touch with Caroline, who I met on that tour. She lives in Gippsland, near Melbourne. We visit each other regularly and have known each other for nearly 30 years now. I enjoyed travelling, working in various live-in jobs and meeting new people while I was away. One memorable job I had was working for P.L. Travers, the author of Mary Poppins. She lived in Chelsea and I was her temporary carer for a month when her permanent carer went home to Spain on holiday. One day the BBC came to interview her and I was told off for walking around in my room upstairs as the creaking floorboards were spoiling the recording of their interview. I had a great time on my OE, but then I got homesick, so I booked a flight home. I missed my family and friends. I arrived home in time for Christmas 1990, happy to be back in Christchurch, and while I still love to travel, I'm always happy to come home. Come away with me Come away with me and I will write you a song Come away with me on a bus My name is Lynette. This is my tale to tell. Naughty, naughty. All my three children left home at 18 years to go to university in Dunedin and I think I thought, great, that's our part done. They can look after themselves now. In late 2006 and late in the evening, I got the phone call, every parent dreads. I need to go to hospital, my 26-year-old daughter, who was a microbiologist, said, and they are saying everybody needs to come. I knew my daughter had been unwell as she had stayed with us the week before on her way back to Dunedin from a holiday in Auckland the holiday that was supposed to restore her to good health. But when she got back to work on the Monday and locked down the microscope, she realised all was not well, as she couldn't see properly. She had run me during the day to say she was having blood tests done. That night, she was admitted to Dunedin Hospital. The next morning, I flew down and my husband drove down, and I arrived just in time to see her having a lumbar puncture in which a needle is inserted into the spinal canal to collect fluid for testing. She was diagnosed with aplastic anemia, which is a rare blood disorder when there is a failure 
of bone marrow to produce sufficient blood cells. My sons were both students in Dunedin and had a flat close to the hospital. We went and bought an airbed and slept in their lounge. They were thrilled. Both her brothers were tested for bone marrow match and our youngest son was a perfect match. The next weekend we returned home and our daughter started several different treatments over the next few months, including lots of blood transfusions to keep her red blood count up. In March of 2007, we got the good news, bad news phone call. Bad news, she needed a bone marrow transplant. Good news, she was coming to Christchurch. At the time, it all sounded quite simple. Six weeks in hospital, six weeks recovery. She was young, fit, and her brother was a perfect match. What could go wrong? My daughter was worried because she had always had a weak stomach and trouble swallowing pills. When she arrived in Christchurch, she had MRSA, which is a superbug, as it is resistant to commonly used antibiotics. And if you're in hospital and have an X-ray and ultrasounds, everything has to be wiped down afterwards. So before going into her room, we had to gown and mask up. My son flew to Christchurch for a day to see doctors and have more tests and visit a doctor who made sure he knew what he was in for. As often it is worse for the donor than the recipient. At Easter, the bone marrow transplant took place. Not as spectacular as it sounds. By evening, my son was complaining he was bored and they let him go home and two days later he went back to Dunedin. The chemotherapy took a heavy toll on my daughter's body and made her vomit most of the time. It had also damaged her lungs and heart, although these organs eventually repaired themselves. After several weeks, my daughter was ready to come home and was placed in a room with several other patients. At 4.30am the next morning, she suffered a seizure and I got the phone call saying, your daughter has become very unwell overnight and wants you. Another phone call to Dunedin to her partner's boss asking if she could come to Christchurch. During the next few days, my daughter became very unwell, suffering several more seizures and I think I saw nearly every department in the hospital. She was then diagnosed with TTP, which is short for a long, unpronounceable blood disorder. And if you get it post-transplant, it's different than getting it without a transplant. One of those times you shouldn't have Googled something medical, but it still didn't prepare me for the meeting where we were told it had a very high mortality rate. At one stage I said, do you think there's something wrong with her speech? And there was, however, luckily this returned to normal. After having a biopsy out in her lungs, the surgeon came and spoke to me, saying, did I think she was depressed? I just smiled and said, probably, thinking if you had been through what she has been through, you would be depressed too. All those weeks she was vomiting constantly and it took an age to take her pills and she just seemed to finish taking one lot and it would be time for the next round. I wasn't sure how much benefit she was getting from them as she was vomiting so much. When she was at her lowest, she was giving them intravenously. It was good with her medical background she could explain to us what the doctors were talking about and also tell the nurse, didn't they stop that pill this morning as she didn't want to take any more pills than necessary Each time they brought her medication, she would count the pills to make sure there were no extras. Mother, being ever helpful, suggested perhaps they could crush the pills and put them in her food. Not that she was eating much. Never in my wildest dreams did I think they would crush them all. When I arrived the next morning, there was a large bowl of food and crushed pills with crushed pills mixed in. I thought they would just do a couple as a trial. She did try and eat some, and then I got rid of the rest. 
I was sure it was the same with her vomiting straight after she'd taken them, and it was the only time I ever interfered with her medication. They tried a new drug, and at one stage they had four pumps pumping medication into her. Something must have worked as 14 weeks after she entered hospital she was able to leave. A few weeks later she had 10 days in hospital again, and in October she went back to Dunedin. When on leaving hospital after her 10 days stay, she said, thank goodness we are leaving as I didn't want to die alone. It made me happy that all the times I had spent the day, evening and even some nights there worth it. The following year she moved to Christchurch for better medical help and job opportunities as her and her partner were working for the same company. She was the subject of a paper in the medical journal for the drug they used to fight the TTP, and which is one of the ones that I didn't get rid of. <laughs> Four seasons in one day Lying in the depths of your imagination Worlds above and worlds below The sun shines on the black... My name is Robert, and this is my tale to tell. An aunt to love... It's interesting how many times over the years I have heard or read stories of people referring to an aunt they remember. Sometimes these stories are of a difficult aunt who was either very strict, treated them harshly or went off the rails, and leaves them with many unhappy feelings and memories. These memories are interesting in themselves and I ask myself, surely there have been many people who have encountered over the years that were probably much worse than the bad aunt, but who don't seem to engender the same degree of emotional feelings or response. Is it possibly because the aunt, being a sibling of our parent, who would have also been brought up in the same house, ate the same food, went to the same school, experienced many of the same events in their lives together, yet somehow and something has caused them to be so different? After all, the aunt is part of the Farnau family, so why is she so different? These are all valid questions and true, but when all is said and done, the aunt is as individual as anyone else. But because she is family, there are those inexplicable expectations and emotional ties and bonds that inevitably impact on these feelings. Having said all that, I don't have any bad aunt memories. But I, along with so many, have had an aunt who was just lovely. Now this aunt, strictly speaking, wasn't a blood relative, but someone who was close to my parents long before I was born, and I always considered her part of the family. Her name was Helen. Auntie Helen was special in many ways. She worked with my parents in a village in India where they had an orphanage and school for destitute boys and Auntie Helen was the matron-come-house-mother. She never married, but these boys, and there would have been several hundred over the years, were her kids. She was a no-nonsense person, which she needed to be with thirty or so boisterous boys at any one time to look after, but they loved her. She gave them love when no one else did. She taught them life lessons when others didn't. She cuddled them when they were sad or hurt. It is impossible to quantify the impact she had on their lives, but I bet it was significant, as many of these boys went on to college and into good jobs, something they would never have been able to do without her. 
So where do I fit into the picture? Well, my mum was not well after I was born and she wasn't coping at all well. Especially with this new wee baby way out in outback India. Perhaps she had postnatal depression. I will never know, but that is my best guess. But Auntie Helen saw the need and moved in to help. That help was significant, but I never knew to what extent until years later. When my parents retired back to New Zealand in the mid-1960s, Auntie Helen chose to return to her family home in Melbourne, Australia, so we didn't see much of her after then. Dad, being an inveterate letter writer, regularly corresponded with her, but I can only recall seeing her a few times over her last years. By coincidence, not long after both my parents had passed away, I needed to travel to Melbourne on business from time to time, and so took the opportunity to catch up with Auntie Helen. These were happy times, and meant a great deal to me. As time went by, she became frailer, and it became more important for me to keep in touch. Anyway, it was on one of these last visits when she was in hospital before she died that she told us something I never knew, that for the first three years of my life I slept in her room so mum could sleep as she was unwell after I was born, and so she and my ayah, an older local woman, would have done most of my caring. This explained why I always had, but never knew why, such a very close emotional attachment to her. She told us that she had not told me sooner out of loyalty to my mum as she didn't want it to affect my relationship with her. That was the sort of person she was. She was also one of those people blessed with a very wry sense of humour. This was evident on one of my last visits. She was obviously not well and told us her sister had just visited. When she admitted to her, she felt she was dying. Quick as a flash, her sister shot back, You've been dead for years. You just won't lie down. <laughs> I was fortunate to have an aunt such as Auntie Helen. She was a warm, caring and loving lady whose memory I value and will cherish till I die. Tale to Tell is produced by me, Stephanie Fruin, and engineered by Peter Rattray at Plains FM Christchurch. The theme tune was composed by Louise Ayling and performed by Louise Ayling, Peter Royal and Stephanie Fruin. If you'd like to take part in My Tale to Tell, contact mytaletotellnz at gmail.com. No life is ordinary. We all have a tale to tell. Memories of our lives